You're listening to Clinical Conversations. I'm Joe Elia. This time we offer the third in a series of four interviews on race and clinical equity. In this series of brief chats, we're talking about equity in clinical medicine, the lack of which is a situation that too many Americans face. With me is Dr. Karen Dorsey Shears, an associate research scientist in general pediatrics at Yale and a director of the Yale New Haven Hospital Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation. Welcome, Dr. Shears. Thank you. Could you tell us a story that illustrates the problem of inequity in clinical medicine? Uh, I have many stories of inequities in clinical medicine. I think one that's relatively well told um, is a story about my participation in um, providing clinical care in the newborn nursery at Yale New Haven Hospital. Um, there, as a general pediatrician, I rotate through the Weld Baby Nursery some weekdays, some weekends, um, along with my colleagues to cover the, the Wellborn service. And since the time that I came to Yale New Haven about uh, 20 years ago um, and became an attending, and have performed that service, there's been a policy in place at Yale New Haven Hospital about uh, how to handle mothers who either report or test positive for marijuana use during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And being a, a little bit of a student of the world um, and, and living, inhabiting both white space and black space, I'm aware that most white women who engage with obstetrics care don't ever get asked if they use marijuana and certainly don't ever get tested for marijuana during pregnancy. But many of the women who deliver at our hospital come through the Medicaid uh, care clinic at the hospital, as do many of the pediatric patients in the clinic, in the part of the clinic where I provide outpatient care. And uh, as a part of a routine, they are surveilled for drug use and tested for drug use during pregnancy. And so there's a surveillance bias of them being identified as being marijuana users. And women use marijuana for, you know, two main reasons I find during pregnancy. One is ongoing use to manage um, anxiety, which is a pretty common reason that women use marijuana. And the other is um, because marijuana can help with um, nausea and emesis associated with pregnancy. Um, so because these women come to attention and they're known to have used marijuana during pregnancy, at the time of delivery, there had been a policy that had three pieces to it. One was that the woman would be screened again at the time of delivery when they come in for delivery, um, that the baby would be screened. So they would put a bag on the baby to screen the baby for exposure and the mother would be um, not allowed to breastfeed in the hospital and her case would be reported to the Department for Families and Children in Connecticut. And uh, I've found this policy quite problematic as an attending, as a junior attending. I, I raised that issue with my colleagues from time to time when I would cover the service. I would not sign orders uh, to have the baby tested. Um, I would try to reassure my colleagues on the floor that if the mother was positive, then the the baby was certainly exposed. We didn't really need to test for that. We could feel pretty confident of it. 
Um, and I did not make DCF referrals for uh, marijuana use myself, but of course, multiple providers uh, make their own decision about whether they're going to refer or not. And then I would always encourage uh, mothers to breastfeed, as I do all mothers, unless there's a strict contraindication uh, for certain types of rare infections. Um, and of course, would recommend to them that they abstain from marijuana use during the time that they were breastfeeding, much the way you know we would talk about tobacco use. Um, and for years, I would complain about this policy, but as a junior faculty member, wasn't really in a position to change it. And it became more and more difficult for me to manage that cognitive dissonance um, over time, especially as marijuana became uh, legal for recreational use and medicinal use in many places in the country over the intervening decades. And, and a few years ago, I just really could not take it anymore. And I wrote an open letter to my colleagues explain to them why I uh, could not adhere to the policy anymore. Um, and that prompted a, a, a meeting at one of our section meetings where we had a really challenging conversation. And people who had engaged in remaking the policy, which it had been remade since I had started complaining about this, but not much, um, really feeling like they were being called out for racism. And I tried to be very direct about the impact um, but not be personal about ascribing racial intent to anyone. Um, but it was, you know, it was a challenging conversation and, and finally the policy was, was removed. Although um, some people who've practiced in our hospital for a long time continue to make reports to DCF. And again, it's not part of the policy, but many, many people have the discretion of reporting um, and DCF, to their credit, has changed the way they respond to marijuana reports um, at the state level, which is, which is a nice thing, but it is still something that really damages the clinical relationship with mostly Black and, and Latinx, Latina uh, women delivering at the hospital. Yeah, so it illustrates the kind of differential um, yeah. enforcement of a rule in one instance, and then in other instances, differential withholding of perhaps treatments, which we'll get to later because you've done a study on, on, on that as, as well. Um, you've conducted research on childhood obesity and um, activity levels. Yes. Um, and so are there any lessons on equity to be found in, 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 in that research? Certainly. Uh, like most pediatric um, uh, sort of I don't call them disease states, but barriers to wellness and barriers to lifelong uh, health optimization. Um, many of them have their roots in, in poverty. And unfortunately, in many places, including the places I've practiced in my career, in racialized poverty, which is uh, the combination of poverty and um, economic divestment, sort of public economic divestment, um, focused in certain uh, racial groups, and, and in particular African Americans, but also increasingly over my lifetime, um, Latinx communities as well. Um, in New Haven, redlining was very much in practice um, during the time of redlining, and when you look at old maps of redlined New Haven and you lay them over the current um, communities that are majority uh, Black and, and Latinx, you see a very direct correlation. And so for obesity, 
Similarly, uh, where you have a generational and government-sponsored economic divestment in communities is where you see food deserts, um, is where you see non-walkable neighborhoods, is where you see real safety concerns around, about, around the use of public space, where you see the most dilapidated uh, school facilities, and, and so on and so on. So um, those things connect directly to uh, children's ability to be outside in the places where they normally accumulate physical activity um, and to have healthy diets. Uh, uh, so yeah. those things overlap greatly. Yeah, and so those playgrounds, for instance, aren't kept in good repair, and there's no place for, for kids to go out. Right. Presume that they can play baseball someplace right. uh, when when the weather turns or to take up running. Um, you mentioned you mentioned colleagues, and so without without referring to your own uh, colleagues, but speaking about uh, clinicians in general, uh, is there something that you wish uh, they would do differently? to address the uh, inequity problem at, at a personal level, not at a policy level, but personally? Yeah, yes. I think that, um, you know, we are a very a studious and learned group as physicians. We we got to this place in our careers because we are not afraid to spend a lot of time with books and journal articles and to think critically about information and to be, uh, you know, uh, to, to bias ourselves towards evidence-based inferences and and to, to guide our actions accordingly. And, and somehow, you know, we're still not impervious to the American sort of cultural blind spot around uh, racial politics in our country. And so my, my wish is that, um, you know, sort of beginning in the pre, pre-med space that folks who want to practice in this service-oriented applied scientific field um, would understand that they need to be students of the people that they serve and the the nature of the institutions that they work in and uh, that we need to understand that as as clearly as we understand the pathophysiology of coronary artery disease because it is just as critical to achieving good outcomes for our patients that we are fluent in in those kinds of dynamics that drive health outcomes. In the 19th century, Rudolf Virchow, the founder of cellular pathology, said that uh, medicine is a social science. Yes, that's right. That it resonates today, especially. Um, So uh, getting back to something we talked about before, I looked at your uh, 2019 article in Health Services Research, um, and it proposes a method for measuring um, health uh, health related disparities, not from one region of the country to the next, or not from one hospital in a city to the next, but within a given hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you tell us a bit about that work and and what the follow up to it was? Yes, certainly. So I can I can say I I it was not the lead. You know, the work that we do is incredibly collaborative at my organization, and my colleague, um, Susanna Bernheim, was the lead for that work, although I was involved, obviously, as an author on that paper. And what um, what that seeks to do is to try to... So, so we work in a place where we believe that 
um, that revealing gaps in quality um, through the transparency of revealing gaps in quality using metrics and you know sort of empiric uh, analytic approaches that we can create incentives, uh, both moral incentives and financial incentives, if those metrics are used in value-based payment, um, to drive quality improvement. And so the idea behind this is to say, if I understand as an institution that I have a performance gap when I look at my lower income and higher income patient population separately, um, that gives me important information that helps me drive, be incentivized, be motivated to change that, to narrow that gap. If I don't know that, if that's invisible because I've never looked at it, nobody's ever developed a methodology to help me understand it, then it's just baked into the cake and I might not even notice it and, and therefore not have any um, ability to change it. So the idea here is to reveal some of the performance differences that can occur even inside of an institution um, when caring for patients who are lower and higher income. And um, it's, it's, not a, it's not strictly a model conceptually about, um, about doing, doing less or, or not doing the same for a lower income and a higher income patient. It can equally be about not addressing the special needs of the patient who lives with a lower income um, and therefore missing an opportunity to really optimize their health because you, you weren't quite attendant to the special need that they have, whether that's appropriate language services or a really important aspect of care coordination that has to do with the housing limitations they have and so on. Yeah, and so so you looked at um, uh, social, uh, you took into account social risk factors. Exactly. And, and, and the, the, the outcome that you were measuring was readmission within 30 days, I think, and you looked yeah. at um, Medicare and Medicaid. And so you... Your conclusion was that there were, uh, I think, uh, three, three, three factors, uh, dual eligibility. So somebody who's eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid, uh, African-American race. And um, I think that was it. Um, and those two factors were associated with higher re- readmission. Um, yes, that's yeah. right. And, you know, we've seen that as a trend you know, when we compare hospital performance uh, across hospitals, not within hospitals, but this was an observation of the same within hospitals. So um, is there something that you wish everyone would read um, as a kind of, I don't know, I mean, there were many Bibles, I guess, out there, but but as a a kind of a, a general introduction to the problem of inequity? Um. Uh, it, it, there are many things. Um, I will say that uh, um, there are many layers and complexities to why we find ourselves at this moment of, of inequities. Um, uh, you know, I, I say often when I teach the medical students and I'm talking about my identity that, you know, I'm a, I'm a African-American woman, a Black woman who doesn't look phenotypically Black, and that's an interesting experience and walk in life, but I'm also somebody who I was raised by parents who really intentionally um, prepared me to work and operate in white space. And that's not true. That's not a, con- a, a universal experience among uh, Blacks, but my parents were, were, were certainly motivated to have me 
you know, be right where I am, uh, a professor at, 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 a, at a top uh, university. And so part of that pre preparation has been a life of study of racial politics in the West and, and in America especially. And so I, I've consumed a lot of writings and literature about this. And I don't really think there's one approach. Some of what I recommend to people depends on where they're starting. So I think if people, especially my white colleagues, really have not, have not, you know, begun anywhere to read, um, then I, I ask them to read a couple of books by white authors. I think sometimes it's easier to hear a message for a white audience written by white people. Um, and I ask them to start there. And then, um, you know, once they've sort of had an introduction to some of the ideas about racial politics and how they come to it as a white American, um, I encourage them to read from black scholars. Um, you know, some of the things at the top of my list uh, for introduction is, is um, uh, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. I think that's really well, well written um, from a white author for a white audience. And then there are many, many uh, black scholars that I recommend. The most recent book by Isabella Wilkerson cast is a, just a tremendously um, powerful insight into ra Western racial politics and especially the American instance of that. Um, but there are many, many more authors. Uh, Ibrahim Sendi is one, um, many who have really thoughtful, um, uh, provocative takes on, on this subject that really help. Uh, for, for physicians, medical apartheid, um, I, I teach the medical students that they're operating in a system of apartheid that's always been a separate and unequal system. And so reading uh, Medical Apartheid, I think, is a really important historical look at, at the, the origins of our separate and unequal health system um, that, that we're sort of living with the legacy of today. You know, um, I, I read um, The Half Has Never Been Told. Mm -hmm. It's a history of the, the, the role of slavery in American economics. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised and, and, mm -hmm. and stunned to learn that there was a kind of a market crash in the 1830s, I think, mm -hmm. when the price of slaves who were invested in as a group, as a, as a commodity, yes. uh, crashed because of, the, I think, the uh, introduction of the uh, cotton gin. Cotton gin, yeah. And those investors were not limited to people in the southern states. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> those those investors were from I I I'm from Lawrence and and Andover and um, there certainly were a lot of investors up there and uh, I, I I hope that they lost all of their money but they didn't. So. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's not quite how it works. No, that's not quite how it works. Yeah. Um, so. Um, this has been a very interesting conversation, Dr. Shears. Do you, any anything you wish I had asked you that I didn't? No, you know, I like to I like to always when I'm talking about this subject say that you know we're in a we're in a tumultuous moment, but I have a lot of hope in the moment because I see signs around me that um, you know when when confronted with this idea that. Um, our progress and our holding on to the our legacy uh, racial political system, our intention that 
a majority of people really want progress. It doesn't make it easy to let go of that, but we're starting to really tip the scales where most people really want to press forward. Whereas I think, um, you know, people wanted a little bit of incremental relief in, you know, the last two centuries, but didn't really, weren't really quite ready to, for progress and the letting go that's needed. And I see that really shifting right now. It's a tense shift because the people who don't want, who say, no, 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 holding on to our old political system is more important than progressing as a people are very dug in and, and sometimes violent, always have been, um, had that potential for violence. Um, but I think the scales in terms of who's in the majority are really tipping. And I think that means we can, we have a coalition of people who can really make a change. And that's what I'm hopeful for. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Shears. Uh, it was lovely to, uh, to meet you and talk with you. And uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much.